uh, is I think it could be a very weighty issue. I think when you talk about the most uh, weighty issues or the issues with the most gravity or the most serious or the, um, the, the, the issues that you have to kind of talk about, like, you know, with uh, put your kittel on or something like that, um, is, is this issue. Uh, but I also think it could be very interesting. So um, the issue that we're talking about, as you could tell from the heading, uh, is kind of the various responses that we've had in, in Jewish literature regarding the idea of, of suffering. And what's interesting is that um, uh, this topic was something that was discussed in many, many places in Jewish literature. And we kind of find somewhat differences, like uh, subtle differences in, in, in the Jewish response to this issue. Um, and even in this one, I think if I were to classify kind of the different Jewish responses or traditional Jewish responses in literature, classic Jewish literature to this issue, to the issue of, you know, the way it's commonly uh, called to nowadays is why do bad things happen to good people? Um, We have about four or five different responses uh, and even, and there's some subtleties. So I think it could be very interesting, especially if you guys look at the, um, the kind of the source material that we we, we bring, uh, I think it could be very uh, interesting discussion. Uh, but it's always a perilous one because whenever you talk about suffering, uh, the one thing that's ubiquitous across all of human history and human experience is that people go through challenges and people have difficulties and people have pain in their lives and people know people that have pains. And collectively as a nation, we know we, uh, you know, if you look at Jewish history from beginning to end, it's just, it just, it's a litany of, of, of bad experiences collectively as a nation. So, it's a very emotional issue as well. Um, and I, I don't think that the, the um, sources that we're going to be addressing with today really address the emotional issue, the emotional aspects of, of this question. Um, I think that's for a different discussion, uh, obviously. Um, you know, um, when, when Sarah died in, in Genesis, so the Torah goes out kind of, you know, in detail talking about how Abraham um, cried for her and eulogized her. And you think Abraham, Abraham's, you know, Abraham's the, the, the titan of philosophy. You know, he's the most cerebral, the most intellectual. Like to him, you know, he should be able to understand uh, the death of a loved one intellectually. Yet the response that the Torah provides that, you know, that Abraham had was one of emotion. You know, uh, talking about the uh, about the deceased, eulogizing and crying, you know, having a mourning period. I think that uh, surely shows that an emotional response to this problem is always appropriate, for sure. Even Abraham, I think, you know, there's no greater example of someone who made tremendous uh, inroads, or inroads or, or achievements, advances, innovations. In, in the intellectual realm than Abraham, you know? Abraham was the father of uh, monotheism. Abraham is the father of what we call today as uh, humans uh, morality, kind of the system of, of what collective societies across the world kind of live and believe, and that's a start by Abraham. Uh, yet Abraham himself, when he was faced with tragedy, he, he dealt with it emotionally as well. So uh, not to belittle God, uh, God forbid, or to uh, not give the proper due to the emotional question of this very important issue. Uh, but um, philosophically, I think it, there's room to discuss it, um, you know, just, you know, on a Sunday night here among friends. So. Did you say rude? No. That it was what? To appropriate to discuss it amongst oh, friends. Oh, oh. <laughs> to you this. understood <laughs> from... I thought you said, I, okay, never mind. What? We're very tricky. <laughs> totally we got to keep your eyes on us. We're very tricky. Roll the tape. What did yeah. I say? <laughs> 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 I misheard. Uh, appropri- uh, yeah, I apologize I if it wasn't. Uh, yeah. have, uh, We're LaShawn Hurrah. <laughs> okay, so um, so let's let's look at the, uh, the first source here. So I, I think that, you know, you read the first source... Uh, it's from the Talmud in, in, in Menachos. The book of Menachos talks about the, uh, the offerings, the flower offerings that were done in the temple. Not exactly something which is very pertinent to us as Jews today. Uh, but uh, that's what the book talks about. 
Uh, but we find this very, very bizarre, very striking, very interesting uh, narrative that happened with Moses as he ascends to heaven. So Moses, obviously, we just read in the Parsha, uh, the Ten Commandments. Moses has this prophecy. He goes up to the mountain. We just read that in this past week's Parsha. Moses, the last words of the Parsha are Moses was up on the mountain four days and 40 nights. Last week, uh, last this most recent Parsha uh, yesterday that we read. Uh, so the Talmud recounts this uh, dialogue that Moses has with the Almighty. And uh, like we said, it's interesting, but I think it provides an insight um, to obviously the response that we have to this issue, but also to the problem that we're all going to be facing when we try to integrate this response into our uh, consciousness. So what does it say? Um, this is, I, by the way, I just typed this now in the past hour. So if you see any typos, it's, it's on me. Uh, and I just translated it. So, <laughs> yes, I know. I remember last time, uh, the only other time I spoke to you, I spoke about, um, it was when Germany was considering a ban on circumcision uh, in the home of, in the Goldberg home. Uh, and I, I, had, I had printed some sources that was really small. And someone said, like, no, 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 you can't do it. I said, I matched it out in one page. I tried to. <laughs> yes. I have to make it as big as I can while, while fitting to one page. <laughs> okay, so Moses ascended to heaven. He found the Almighty sitting and tying crowns atop letters, it should say. I apologize. As you know, if we open up a Torah scroll, there's uh, uh, seven, seven, I think seven letters that on top of them it has these little crowns. It looks like these, you know, I'm familiar with what we're talking about. So Moses asks, who is obstructing your ways? That's, uh, which means, like, why do you need to do this? Like, you're the almighty God, creator of heaven. Why do you have to color or, you know, put in these little uh, chupchik on top of the letters? That's the question he asks them. So God tells him, uh, there's a man who will be in the future after several generations, and his name is Akiva ben Yosef, famous Rabbi Akiva, who is going to emerge onto the Jewish scene uh, at the, you know, the first uh, century of the Common Era. So, you know, 14, somewhat 100 years later. And he is going to derive piles and piles of laws from every tick, from every coast, the word coast, the word I translate is, is tick. So every, every little kind of, every one of those little crowns that you see on top of a letter, God tells Moses, Rabbi Akiva, this famous Rabbi Akiva that we know, he is going to derive laws. And what those laws are, by the way, we, don't, we have no idea what those laws are. Like, there's no place across the entire 2,711 pages of the Talmud that says, oh, this law is derived from this little crown on top of this letter. So what those laws are is, is a big, big question and debate in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, um, in the scholarship. So Moses says, okay, you know what? Let me see this guy. Um, so he gets uh, apparated. Moses says, show him to me. He says, go back. Go back. So he went back and he sat. And Moses suddenly is transported uh, into the future. And he's sitting in the lecture hall, and Rabbi Kiva is lecturing. And he's sitting at the end of, of eight rows. By the way, every single, every single peculiarity that we have with, with reading the source is discussed by all the commentators. What do you mean, eight rows, and he's sitting at the back, and all these things are, 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 are discussed at great length. So, so Moses is transported into the lecture hall of Rabbi Kiva. He's sitting at the end of the, of the eight rows, and he doesn't know what they're talking about, and he gets all upset. He's like, wait a minute, this is my Torah. This is the Torah of Moses. And Rabbi Kiva's talking, he doesn't understand. And he says that Allah doesn't understand. He says that Allah doesn't understand. Until finally, Rabbi Kiva arrived at a certain matter, and his students questioned him, where do you know this law from? So Rabbi Kiva said, a law? And he says, what's the source for it? So he responded to them, it's a law from Moses and Mount Sinai. Halacha l'moshem Sinai. It's a law that's, there's no source for it in the Torah, it's just a tradition from Moses. Moses hears that, and he's happy. He's a swash, he's placated. Fine, and he goes back to the Almighty, and he says to him, Master of the world, um, oh wow, this is bad. You have a man such as this, and you give the Torah via me? Moses says to him, wait a minute, I'm, about to, I'm, here, I'm here up in heaven to receive the Torah. Obviously the Almighty thought that I was the right guy for the job. And now we see Rabbi Akiva, who's so much more capable than me, and he's saying Torah, I don't even understand what he's talking about. Give the Torah through him. Why are you giving the Torah through me? So what does God tell him? Listen to this response. Silence. Stok. People, stok. He tells kids, you know. You know, if your kids make too much noise. Stok, silence. Don't ask questions. Why? So it was deemed in my mind. And Moses said back to him, 
okay, this is really the point that we wanted to get to. Um, uh, Master of the world, you show me his Torah, now show me his reward. I saw the Torah, I saw the great accomplishments in Torah of Rabbi Kiva. He's deriving these piles and piles of laws, fantastic. Okay, what does the reward of Rabbi Kiva look like? He said to him, go back, and he went and he saw that they were flaying his skin with combs. Uh, we know that uh, the Emperor Hadrian, uh, while being very initially very uh, favorable to the Jews, eventually went on you know, a kind of uh, anti... He set out to disassemble uh, the Jewish people, basically, top to bottom. Uh, so we have the Bar Kochba revolt, the year 132 of the Common Era, uh, was seen by most historians, they interpret that as, as, a, as a response to uh, the Hadrianic persecutions, where they said no study of Torah publicly, uh, no circumcision, um, uh, no observance of Shabbat or needle laws. That's why they had the the um, they had the the revolt of the rebellion, and they succeeded. Uh, something that was not done in five hundred years of of, of the Roman Empire, uh, they succeeded in 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 kicking the Romans out and establishing sovereignty of the land. And you know, today in Israel, they find all the time these coins that were minted. Uh, by Bar Kokhba during those three years where the Jews had sovereignty. Uh, eventually, uh, Hadrian in, in, uh, in 19, uh, not 19, sorry, year 135, uh, they overwhelmed the rebellion, and that's the story of, of, of Betar, and they, just, they were slaughtering towns, and, and they went and they, 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 uh, they kind of um, eliminated the leadership of, of the Jewish people. And Rabbi Tiva, who was an old rabbi at the time, they uh, they they executed him, or they they killed him in this really horrible way. Um, they flayed his skin. So Moses asked the Almighty, "Show me the reward of Rabbi Akiva. And he says, "Oh, okay, sure." Turn around, turns around, and what does he see? Moses being being killed in this horrible, just horrible way. Sorry, I apologize. Rabbi Akiva dying in this horrible, gruesome death. That's the reward. So what he says back to him, he says, "Wait a minute." Uh, he said back to God, Master of the world, this is the Torah and this is the reward. This is the reward? It doesn't make any sense. So what does God respond to him? Silence. So it was deemed in my mind. Thus, the very first time we have recorded uh, documentation of this question, why do bad things happen to, uh, to good people? Well, I guess you have Job before that. Let's, let's hold that. Let's put that. In. Well, Job was, was after that, but uh, it was recorded before that. Um, Talmud, but the Talmud records this this question that Moses asked the Almighty many, many, many years um, before the Talmud was written, and it says the question: Rabbi Kiva, who is obviously a righteous person, and really bad things are happening to him, and the, you know that's the first time. What's the answer? Be quiet. You know. Don't ask questions. This is what I think. This is me talking. God says to Moses, don't ask questions. This is the way I do things. So it was deemed in my mind. That's what I think. It's a little disappointing. No, what do you guys think? You know, it's, it's, yeah, there's a lot of questions here. Like, first of all. So who actually wrote this section and from whence did they get it? Yes, so the, it was it was uh, written that was canonized. Talmud's canonized at the year five hundred of the Common Era. So admittedly much after the event. So it's not historical. Agreed. No one no one would argue that it is historical. Uh, yet the tradition was that this is that this uh, this actually this happened. was a story that passed down. That yes, this part was part of the collective. Rush, it's not a well, it's, it's it's equivalent. It's part of the collective oral code. Yes. So as to the historicity, it's a different discussion. Um, but for sure, the perspective is the Jewish perspective, obviously, according to Tom. And I'm saying there's a few major questions here. I think we could agree. Anyone has any answers? <laughs> For doing good, or for being right, or for being able to teach, the you know you don't expect a reward. That's part of what goes wrong. Is the you know I do something right, and then you reward me. You know I do something because of what I do. But he wasn't Well, Akiva was. He said, right. "Show me his reward." But in terms of, I mean, when you're saying expect a reward. 
Well, Moses is saying to God, you know, what was his reward? So saying, I'm saying, so, you know, the lesson, what was the lesson he was teaching Moses? So, well, what Judy, saying. what you're trying to say is that... Yes, tell me what I'm saying. Is that... <laughs> if, I, if I understand what you're saying is yeah. that God's basically telling Moses it's the wrong question to ask. Mm-hmm. Because it's all... It's out for altruistic reasons. He was kind of like sending him away. He says, don't ask him silly questions. And in fact, I'm not going to show you his reward at all. I'm going to show you his punishment. I think that's a legitimate answer. Like, I think so. You know, we have a, a famous Mishnah in the chapters of the Fathers. Um, um, be um, uh, don't be like uh, servants who serve the master uh, uh, contingent on upon receiving reward. Rather, you should always do it altruistically. On you know, you should you should serve the master without the intention of of receiving reward. Interestingly, the text that Maimonides has of that Mishnah, the Rambam, he he switches one word instead of saying. Um, uh, shalom almanach, he says almanach shalom. The difference being is that the commonly accepted text of that Mishnah reads, rather you should be like, like servants who serve the master without intention of receiving without intention of receiving reward. That's how uh, the, the commonly accepted text. Maimonides switches it around. He says you should be like servants who serve the master with intention to not receive reward. It's like, <laughs> you don't want it. It's not like, you know, uh, but yes, I think it's a, that's a very interesting idea. If you think about that, that maybe maybe God's kind of like almost toying with Moses by telling him, "No, this is not this is not the right question. You ask for his reward, I'll show you his punishment. Where's the reward? Don't ask questions. You're missing the whole boat." I like that. That's a good question. Why was Rabbi Akiva punished, or, or was he punished? I'm saying, I think there's a there's there's a there's a uh, there's a, a problem. I think just in the you know, the continuity the here. Uh, the, word, the question, I'll give you a second, sorry. The question that was asked uh, by Moses to God, it says, you showed me his Torah, show me his reward. What does he get? What does he show? The punishment. So there's one question is, why does Rabbi Kiva get punished? Another question is, how is this an answer to the question? M- Moses asked, show me the reward. Being flayed, skin being flayed. That's reward. That's punishment. It doesn't seem like you're answering the question. You know, uh, so there's two questions there. You know, for you know, a what kind of answer is it? Be quiet, don't ask questions. This is the way I think. What kind of answer is that? Moses is asking a legitimate question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Very legitimate question. Dying on Tuesday, so that has a whole different symbolism and meaning and strength. Okay, so maybe maybe that is a reward. Is that a reward? Maybe. <laughs> How many people can do that? <laughs> it's, it's true. We all know about that. There are many, many other rabbis who were wonderful men and teachers. We don't know their names. So, I would like to say, on the other hand, I don't agree with this at all. Because what was Rabbi Akiva doing? He was doing what it says in the Shabbat. And if That's you right. follow all my laws and be you know, honest with your God and everything, you will be granted A, B, C, D. And if you don't, you mm-hmm. will be punished. Mm-hmm. Well, Rabbi Akiva. Was doing all that. Mm-hmm. So God had made this promise to the Jews that I will reward you with good and you'll have plenty and not to worry. And I think you went back to uh, Well, that uh, seems like a very legitimate question. And what's interesting? Or the Ulamaba. Is he speaking Hebrew? Is he speaking Hebrew? I'm going to be saying everything in, in Hebrew. Hebrew. Because he understands the reward. But, but, but what kind of example does that give to the Jews? Them, oh, you really no, what's actually interesting about that is that there's one source that was left off, and that is the actual source that um, there's a whole page in the half of the Talmud that talks about Rabbi Kiva, kind of his humble beginnings, and how what's going on, 24,000 students, all the story of you know, him and his father-in-law and his wife, and all those stories, and, there, and then it tells us the story of his martyrdom. And it seems like at the time he was very delighted, and the students asked him, like, why are you so happy you're being tortured? And he says to them, because I, I said the Shema, right? nafshecha, and, and you have to love God with all your soul. And the Mishnah, the Mishnah tells us, what do you mean with all your soul? You have to love God, even if God takes away your soul. And, and Rabbi Kiva says to his students, my whole life I've been saying this, and I never had the opportunity to actually love God with all my soul. Now that I'm being 
killed Al Kiddush Hashem. I'm being killed, you know, because of of of, of what I was doing uh, for the sake of heaven. Now I can be happy. So yes, it, it was this also the historical time when there was so much martyrdom that the rabbis said we're going to cut back reasons why you cannot be a martyr for these things. You could be a martyr for two or three things because so many so many people were martyring themselves. Mm-hmm. Oh, what's actually interesting is that uh, the Talmud is. Historically, the Talmud. Well, yes, it was a time of heightened. Uh, it was time of, of it's called a shmad. Shmad is is a time where uh, the 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 rights of the Jews to live and peacefully and to practice as Jews was being threatened. And what's actually interesting, the Talmud in Sanhedrin, where it talks about Kiddush Hashem, it's on seventy four B, A to B, where it turns the page, uh, and it talks about um, in a time of shmad, then the responsibilities of martyrdom are raised because uh, at a time where the, sta- the, the status of, of the Jewish people um, to continue and to flourish as Jews is in question because of uh, the rules and the edicts and the decrees of, of their host nation, uh, therefore the, the responsibility of martyrdom goes up. Yes, more. That's what it says. Not, not to budge, so to speak. Shmad, Shmad, S-H-M-A-D. Shmad, Shmad is a term for when uh, for when the Jewish people are try- their rights to live as Jews are being infringed upon. Well, yes, but when it's heightened, you know, actually, the term Shmad is actually specifically talked about uh, in context of the Hadrianic persecutions in the year one thirty five to one thirty. I think he died at one thirty six. Uh, thankfully, Hadrian died because he, he was, out of all of the villains in Jewish history, uh, the Emperor Hadrian was one of the worst. You know, up the, worse than, probably worse than Titus and uh, worse than, uh, uh, you know, even the Antiochus and worse than Pompey. Worse than, worse than them all was, 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 uh, was Hadrian. Um, so thankfully he died and, and his decrees were null. But that was the time of Shmad and, and thus... We do have a lot of episodes of, of martyrdom. Like self-flagellation, you know. Well, not that, but like saying, you know, I'll be the martyr, or, you know, Take me we have one in scripture, right? What does it say? It says that um, uh, Judah, uh, Judah tries to reason with his father. Yeah, to send Benjamin with me, and then, you know, if I don't bring him back, I guarantee kind of like to accept the... So yes, there is this thing. I, I, don't, I don't know exactly where it's spelled out for us, how we actually practice it. But I think that idea is like, you know, you know, where they have like this spiritual bank where you can kind of allocate... I'm just wondering, like, with Rebecca, maybe he was thinking, this is happening to me, and sort of thank God to for now. Yeah, we do have that. And he had been told, stop teaching, right? That's right. That's right. He famously said, well, a Jew without Torah is like a fish out of water. He compared the Jews to fish. It's basically new this Oh, it seems like, yes. Uh, yes, it seems like. So how is martyr? How is martyrdom received? Well, the. How is martyrdom received? Yeah, is that is that a noble thing? Well, it's it seems like uh, you open up the, the Maimonides in the very first first section that he talks about kind of the principles of Judaism. And he says that someone who dies, Al-Kiddush Hashem, who is a martyrdom, who dies for the sake of heaven, so to speak, dies because they're Jewish, whether that means that they were, God forbid, in the Holocaust, or they were in the synagogue in Copenhagen yesterday, or, uh, you know, anytime someone's life was taken away because of God, so to speak, because they're God's people, because they fulfill God's work, there's no one who's greater than them. That's what, my, that's what Maimonides quotes. I'm thinking um, in terms of Oh yeah, oh yeah. So it, it, I, don't think, I think it transcends uh, the reason why. But you know, we've been the subject of a lot of persecution and marginalization, if you will, over the centuries. And in in the Jewish and the Jewish uh, Weltanschauung, 
nothing uh, overrides, nothing supersedes, nothing is greater in, in you know the status of of those of those markets. <laughs> Oh no! Oh no! So of course not. Yeah, you don't. Yeah. Oh yeah. Of course. Right. Yeah. We, we don't believe in suicide. But is that, that was the question. I didn't understand the question. No. 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 But it's an honor. Yeah, but yeah. But that's an honor. Yes. Because we are doing. What we're instructed to do, keeping the faith or honoring the Torah. So we are, in a sense, the victim. We are not self anointing. Yeah, we don't believe in putting yourself into a perilous situation, uh, bringing that upon yourself. Another example um, as to, I, I just thought of where, um, where uh, punishment in one area will, uh, will obviate or. Uh, Prevent punishment in different areas where we say that the Almighty destroyed the temple, and we say, "Blessed is he that he, you know, that he he, he let his fury go on eights and vavanim on on stones and, and and wood, so to speak." That the Almighty doesn't let his wrath out upon us; rather, let him destroy the temple. That's a much better thing. Where uh, the anger that should have been directed and channeled towards us uh, was instead uh, directed at the temple, at the edifice. At the physical temple, and not the eternal nation. Either way, we have uh, we have a question that was posed by Moses to the Almighty. Just uh, to uh, um, review what what our takeaways here. Question: uh, Where is the reward of Rabbi Akiva? Answer: Here is him being punished. Obviously, there's a problem for us. Yeah. So we're going to have. We're, we're, Okay, but we're gonna have to we're gonna have to reconcile this problem where the question was posed: Where's the reward of of of, of Rabbi Kiva? And the answer that we saw was the imagery of of, Mo, of Rabbi Kiva being punished. That's question number one. And question number two is: What kind of answer is it when Moses when Moses persists and says, "This is the Torah. This is the reward. Bad things happen to good people." And then the answer is, yeah, be quiet. Yeah, be quiet. Exactly. Be quiet. We can't understand if that's the age old. Okay. Okay. That. Okay. Both. Just doesn't work in this century. Yeah, and 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 I think yeah, we'll have a very hard time accepting that. You know, it's what kind of answer is that? It seems like we're dodging. It seems like it seems like we're dodging a very um, important issue. Like we're trying to hide behind the fence or brush it under the rug. Okay. That's those are our two problems. We good? That's good. Let's move on to uh, source number two. No. That was the porpoise. Source number two presents another time that our very own Moses asked God the same question. And of course, we have to say to ourselves, wait a minute, Moses, you don't remember that you asked God the same question? And this is all, remember, this is only, we'll see historically, this is 40 days later, right? The first. The first, uh, the first source was when Moses went up to heaven. Second source is in is in Exodus thirty three. Uh, that's after uh, the episode of the golden calf. So that's forty days later. Uh, what does it say? Uh, Rabbi Yochanan said a name of Rabbi Yossi. This is a uh, an abridged version. I I cut out a little bit. I just for the sake of honesty, <laughs> I did take a little bit out of this source. Uh, Rabbi Yochum says the name of Rabbi Yossi. Three things Moses asked from the Almighty and he gave them. It means there's three questions that Moses had and the Almighty responded. Uh, and one of them is he asked to know the ways of God. And God gave him. God responded. As, uh, what, what's that? As scripture states, inform me of your ways. Moses says, let me know your ways. What did he ask? Moses said uh, to God, why is it that there is a righteous person and it is good for him? A righteous person, and it is bad for him. A wicked person, and it is good for him. A wicked person, and it is bad for him. So Moses here expands the question, really, to four different scenarios. A righteous person is good for them. You see some people that they're righteous, and it's good for them. A righteous person is bad, bad for them. That's really the question we asked earlier. Bad things happen to good people. Uh, but then he flips it to the other side, the converse side. Uh, a wicked person, and it's, and it's good for them, and a wicked person, and it's bad for them. 
Moses seems to be asking God the same question that he asked him a little bit earlier. And now he gets a response. God doesn't tell him, quiet, don't ask questions. And now, he, now God gives him a response. And he seems, what's the response? So God responded, a righteous person and it's good for him. That's a completely righteous person. A righteous person and it's bad for him. That's a partially righteous person. A wicked person and it's good for him. It's a partially wicked person. A wicked person is bad for him. A completely oop. Let's just say wicked. <laughs> wicked. I told you guys. I, I did. I did not. I did not proof for this. I apologize. Hastily put together. Ah uh, no. That's a completely wicked person. I apologize for that. Yeah. Well, basically, it's all in the time. A good person can be good. Well, well, that's the Supreme Court. Um, well, or about Moses, or about God's God's perspective on this issue. The question I have is, how can the writers know what God's answer? Well, they have they have a tradition. Remember, the, the idea of a, of Judaism today is uh, is a non profit organization, uh, but for many. <laughs> But for for many many years we had prophets, and the prophets, uh, the prophets. So this is a, a sort of a, a translation of some prophets. Well, this would be remember these are both dialogues that Moses had. Okay. Uh, we, this is this is actually. Well, this, well, this is in the, in the Talmud. Talmud. Yeah. Well, it, the, the, the Talmud, the Talmud gives the insight as the Old Torah is going to do. It gives insight into the written Torah. So when it says, uh, "Teach me your ways," uh, the Talmud gives you actually what what that actually means. It kind of is the oh, uh, teacher's guide to the um, uh, to the to, to what it says in, in Scripture. So, um, you know, we have. Well, actually, um, if you look at um, source, then a third source. <laughs> uh, the other source um, talks about Rabbi Eliezer. Uh, who was Rabbi Eliezer? Rabbi Eliezer was the famous. He was, he was the the probably a uh, contemporary of Rabbi Yochanan Mezakai. Uh, he lived uh, at, throughout the temple being destroyed for the first century, uh, but he was famous for many reasons. But he was the primary teacher of Rabbi Akiva. Uh, but additionally, the famous episode of Rabbi Eliezer, where he was banished and he was excommunicated, uh, happened to him. Uh, there was a Famous, famous, uh, famous episode, like uh, one of the tragic episodes in Jewish history. Um, at the year uh, 80 uh, in Yavne, we know that the, the center of Jewish leadership moved from Jerusalem to Yavne. That's where they reestablished the Sanhedrin and all the rabbis went. Um, so in Yavne, uh, they, well, it was actually a little bit after uh, the, the full convention of Yavne, um, there was a debate as to the ritual purity of a certain oven. It was a story. It was the story of the oven, Tano Shalachnai, and basically Rabbi Eliezer believed that this oven was pure, and right, and everything was not pure, and he refused to, uh, you know, to uh, uh, to budge on his position, and and they said, "You're not agreeing to the majority position. You're out." And they excommunicated basically, and that means that like when people came to visit, it sit at least four cubits away, so eight feet away, and. Many times in the Talmud, when the Talmud recounts the opinion of Rabbi Eliezer, it says, he's a Shamuti, we don't listen to him, we don't ever go with his opinion because he was excommunicated, despite the fact that he was the, you know, the preeminent... Yes, well, because he was excommunicated, there are various laws regarding 
uh, when someone gets excommunicated from the community, um, pending, obviously, he had the option to uh, to give in, but he refused to his last day. So one of the laws is that if someone's excommunicated, you can't sit next to them. You can't sit and talk to them. Like, you and I have to sit a minimum of four cubits, uh, amos, What's which is uh, a cubit is uh, about 62 yeah. centimeters. The length of an arm. So, yeah, it's about eight feet or seven feet or whatever. Uh, yes, so. In this story, is this where Rabbi Elias has certain powers and is able to. Oh, well, that's the story. The story goes is that Rabbi Eliezer announced if I'm right, he did four things. If I'm right, let the waters of the river start heading the opposite direction. And the water started heading in the opposite direction. And the rabbi said, it doesn't matter. The majority is against you. We don't care. It doesn't, you're not going to prove it to us. He's like, if I'm right, let this tree uproot itself and re-plant uh, itself 100 amos, 100 cubits away. And suddenly the tree uproots itself and it moves 100 amos away. And people say, the rabbi says, it doesn't matter. Majority rules. It doesn't matter that you have all this. You, you're able to do this. It doesn't prove anything. The third thing that happened was that if I'm, rabbi declared, if I'm right, let the walls of the base village cave in. And suddenly the walls started caving in, and they remained like that, basically caved in um, um, just in perpetuity. And lastly, he said, if I'm right, let there be a prophetic, prophetic voice that announces. And suddenly everyone hears this booming prophetic voice, and what do the rabbis say? Loba shamayim he, the Torah is not in heavens, it doesn't matter, all your proofs are nothing, we go with majority, akrab mahatos. If you don't agree, you're excommunicated, and he says, I don't agree, and you're excommunicated. That's the, that, 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 those are the stories. It's in Bav Metziah 59b. Very long uh, discussion. Now, the problem, what, what made it even naughtier, the story was that Rabbi Eliezer was the brother-in-law of Rabbi Gamliel. Rabbi Gamliel was the person who signed off on this excommunication. He was the brother, they were brothers-in-law. Like Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Eliezer married Rabbi Gamliel's sister. Yet he, um, because he felt the need, especially after the temple destroyed and after the weakening of the central authority of the Jewish people, he felt the need that there has to be uniformity. If the rabbis all agree, the majority agrees one way, it doesn't matter if Rabbi Lezer is the, is, the, is the greatest scholar and he does all these proofs and he's my brother-in-law, it doesn't matter, he's out. Kind of he put his foot down, Rabbi Gamliel did. Uh, so that's Rabbi Lezer. So he's about to die here. So Rabbi Lezer is sick and his students came to visit him. So, even though he was excommunicated, the Talmud elsewhere says when they came to visit him, they sat four cubits away. So, he's in the, they basically sit, they're sitting far away from him to demonstrate that they can, even though he's on his deathbed, really. So, they came to, the students came to visit him. Rebbe Lezer says, um, there is a great fear in the world. Rebbe Lezer is talking about his own personal pain and how much he was suffering as he was uh, uh, in his final illness. And he says that there's this great fury. The Almighty is just, is just letting, letting him have it. So the students, all the students that came there, they started to cry, and Rabbi Kiva started laughing, which, by the way, is a theme. Several times at the Talmud, we see a bunch of people crying, Rabbi Kiva laughing. And Rabbi Kiva always had this optimistic view. He was always able to see the positive. You know? um, uh, elsewhere, the Talmud tells that uh, Rabbi Kiva and a bunch of his, uh, of his colleagues were walking after the temple's destroyed, and they see like animals roaming Temple Mount. Everyone starts crying. He starts laughing. They say to him, why are you laughing? He says, then why are you crying? So he says, well, what are you crying? This is the temple. This is, this is the place where, where Solomon built this temple. This, is the, this was the center point, the epicenter of, of Jewish life for 800 years. And all this in ruins, totally raised, raised with a Z. How can we not cry? So he says to them, well, that's why I'm laughing. Because this is a fulfillment of a prophecy. He brought to you those two prophecies. And the prophecy says the temple will be destroyed. And then it'll be rebuilt. So he says, if you didn't see, if you don't see it being destroyed and being in ruins, you would think maybe the other prophecy would not be fulfilled as well. Thus, the evidence of the the temple being ruins that gives me comfort because I know that the other prophecy will be fulfilled as well. That it will once be once again uh, be flourishing. Uh, Jerusalem will once again be uh, robustly replete with with Jews and and Jewish vibrancy. Uh, that's a story elsewhere. Yes, always the positive. So this is another example, even though that, that, that particular uh, story is brought down to the end of Makos, the book of Makos. Um, this is in Sanhedrin. So here it says, they see their, their, their teacher suffering, and they all start crying, and Rukib starts laughing. 
So he said, so, so they said to him, uh, no, Rabbi Eliezer is sick. Rabbi Kiva is one of his disciples, one of his students, and there's other students as well. Uh, Rabbi Yehoshua, Rabbi Joshua, Rabbi Tarfon, Rabbi Lazar ben Azaria, all those other students came to visit. All those guys in the yeah, exactly. These, these are the same people. You know, these, are, these are the names that are ubiquitous across all of Mishnah and Talmud. So, so what happened here? So they're all crying and he's laughing. So they say, well, wait a minute, why are you laughing? So he says to them, why are you crying? He says, how can we not cry? We see a Torah scroll like our, our venerated teacher, Rabbi Eliezer, is, is in pain. How can we not, how can we not, how can we not cry? So he says to them, this is why I'm laughing. The same exact reason. Why? For all the time that I saw our teacher's wine not ferment, his flax not smitten, or smote, or whatever, his oil not spoil, I said, perhaps, God forbid, our teacher received his reward in this world. And now I see him in pain, I'm happy. Basically, once again, Rabbi Kiva coming and seeing the optimistic side of things. And he said, Rabbi Lezer had everything going for him. You know, everything was going well for him. His, his, his wine and his, and his flax and everything was going well for him. And I was worried he had no, no punishment in the world. He didn't, never received any, he never had a bad day. Now that I see he got punished, I know that his, his reward is, is safe for the world to come. So this basically, I think, is a... Um, Sources two and three complement each other very well. Um, and I think this would be probably the classical Jewish response to the question, why do bad things happen to good people? The answer is, like it says in, in source number two, because they're, they're only part, they're not completely righteous. Everyone has, as we know, there's no righteous person in the world who does good and does not sin. Thus, everyone has, even the most righteous of people, has a little bit of sin, and that sin they have to, has to be accounted for. Therefore, they have to receive their punishment, or they're accounting for it. That sounds very much like a Christian philosophy. Well, maybe, uh, maybe they borrowed it from us. <laughs> uh, but no, but the idea of, of reward and punishment is an idea that you basically have to believe if you believe in God. Because by definition, if you believe in God, you believe that God has a plan, and God did this all for a reason. Uh, so by definition, you're saying that our actions and what we do matters. And if there's no reward of punishment, and if Hitler and Mother Teresa are in the same, they're in the same place, well then, what, what does life matter? It doesn't really matter, irrespective of what you do, you know? So by definition, we all accept the idea of reward and punishment, that our actions have meaning to them. Uh, but this, I think, would, would be the, um, the classical Jewish response uh, to this question, that even the most righteous of people has a little bit of, of sin. So does that mean that Rabbi Akiva was flayed because he had a little bit of sin? <coughs> okay, so let's, we'll, we'll bring it full circle. We'll bring it, this is exactly, that, that insight, I think, will bring it, we'll bring it totally full, full circle. Um, yeah, so... Uh, like we said, this this is I think is creeping slowly into the emotional problem a bit. Um, but yes, I, I, if we were to encapsulate the Jewish the, from these sources, the response to this problem, that's probably the simplest way we would would answer it. That even the most righteous has something that they need to atone for, and it's the, you, you have the choice. You know, do you want it in this world? Do you want it in the next world? And we know that the exchange rate it's like you know, would you trade a hundred dollars for a hundred pesos? I don't even know what the exchange rate is or rubles, you know? No, I don't know what it is. But I somehow assume that the dollar is worth more than the pesos. Can we safely assume that? Yeah. Let's assume that. Okay. So uh, do you want to get punished in dollars or in pesos? You know, you want find 100 pesos or $100? What do you rather, Richard? Of course, exactly. Uh, thus, <laughs> you know, uh, or rubles or whatever, whatever currency. Uh, thus... Uh, we that that I think would w- would explain it that um, if you're going to anyhow receive uh, your uh, your share for your misdeeds, let it be in this world where it's much simpler. You know, it's the physical body; it's not eternal. It's in pesos. Okay, well, take fine in pesos. Okay, but this is not even what they're talking about. What happened with Moses? Forget about this this whole rationale. What happened with Moses? Moses asked the question. God tells him, no answer for you. Quiet, silence, is the way I work. Forty days later, Moses 
asks the same question, gets an answer. What's going on over here? What is going on over here? How? First of all, on Moses' part, why is Moses asking the question again? Why is Moses asking the same question again? Number one. Number two, why is there a different answer? What's going on? It's only 40 days had passed from when Moses goes up to the, to the heaven, uh, to the mountain, and has the first dialogue in uh, source number because one. Moses' second question was more in the abstract. God commanded them. But to really focus on Rabbi Akiva, and the first one, God was saying, maybe I, maybe I messed up there. He wasn't that bad of a guy, and yet he got three for each other. Okay, so, okay. I think, I don't think that's, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's, no, or, or, or the, no, or the, what he's, what he's trying to say is that the, the imagery or the, the tangibility, so to speak, of an episode of Rabbi Kiva is much harder to explain than, well, bad people, good people, kind of like. You know, this thing about the world to come, I think it's Psalm 48, it's in the Daily Psalm, where it says, blessed is the guy that God man that God protected because he will be more prepared for the world. And we say that in the daily mm-hmm. And so that if you get a little bit of punishment because we were righteous most of the time and wicked or sinful a just small piece of the time you get that correction by God and then you're fully ready for the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But Moses wasn't able to handle it. And I think I look around the room and I see I see skeptics everywhere, uh, and and it's like as and uh, you know I want I want to just ex- this is what I wanted to reach you know this is exactly what I wanted to reach the skepticism. I believe that the reason why God told Moses, "Quiet, this is the way I think," is because even Moses, even the great Moses. The prophet who took us out of Egypt and did the plagues and split the sea, the whole deal, Moses. To really understand this, to be at peace, to have internal harmony with the idea of our physical punishment being a good thing, Moses can't handle it. This is the way God thinks. If you look at God's perspective, it makes sense. This is the way I think. So has my intelligence deemed. Moses, quiet, don't ask questions. You can't understand it. I think the skepticism that we all have here today, hearing this response, Moses shared it as well. Because for us, as humans, we're all humans, for us, we have such a um, uh, geocentric, so to speak, perspective on life. You know, we're so physical. That's what's real to us. Even if we believe in the spiritual, we believe in God, we believe in, we believe it all. It's never going to be as real to us as the physical world. Thus... <laughs> God tells Moses, listen, for you, this is not the right answer for you. You're not, it's not going to satisfy you. Don't. This is the way I think. Right? In my mind, in God's mind, when I ask the question, where's your Bikiva's reward? The answer is him, him being punished. That's the way God sees it. Right? This is the reward. Why? Because there's nothing greater than for a person than to have their punishment in this world. But uh, where's the reward? This you can't understand. This is beyond, even Moses beyond you. Now, what happens to Moses in the interim? What happens over the next 40 days? He's up in the heaven for 40 days. He comes down. He sees the people doing the sin of the golden calf. God says, I'm going to destroy them. He intercedes on their behalf. He comes down again, and his face is shining like the sun. The face of Moses like the face of the sun. The people see him. They freak out. He has to wear a mask the rest of his life. What happens? We know the idea of sun, just as an aside. You know what? Yes, 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 yes. This is an exodus. It says it clearly. He wore a mask the entire time. He only took it off when he went into the Ohel Moed. Because his face was shining. It says the people weren't able to see him. People weren't able to look at him. We'll, we'll read it in a few weeks in the Parsha. People weren't able, to, weren't able to look at him. Right? Moses, during the interim, had... Now, now what does it mean, sun? The face of Moses is the face of the sun. We know that the sun is one of the things that is, that is, that is, me'ein olam haba. Something that's, there's a few things, three things that are a measure of the world to come in this world. That's the sun. Why? Look, try look at the sun. Anyone here tried that? Anyone try here, did the sun stare? You can't do it. Why? Because it's beyond us, right? Our soul, right, in a soulful world, it's, right, it's beyond us. Moses, in that time, he upped his game, so to speak. He became someone who didn't have the physical inhibitors. 
Thus, he says, God, I want to ask you the same question I asked you 40 days ago. 40 days ago, I asked you the question. He said, this is not for you. You don't understand it. You're still physical. Right? Now, Moses is like, wait a minute. I'm, my face is shining. I have this. I, pray what you pray, Chama. I right now have shedded my physicality. I want to ask the question again. Now, maybe you give me a real answer. That says, oh, now you can understand it. This is something that now we could talk. And he gives him the answer. But beforehand, this is not for you. Even Moses. So I think that, you know, the skepticism that we have, we can feel... Well, um, what, it says, what it says is that Moses, um, when he came back down, he had achieved a equilibrium where his physicality was no longer hindering his, his soul. So basically, it's like as if he had a soul that wasn't an untethered soul or a soul that wasn't, didn't have the obstruction of a body. You know, we have a soul, but it's so deep within us and so covered up. It's so muffled, the effect of the soul is so muffled by our body that it doesn't, doesn't shine forth. Moses was able, at, during the interim, thus he says, now I can understand it. God says, oh, you know what? Now, the spiritual-centric perspective will indeed make sense to you. But I think we can find tremendous comfort. Um, you go ahead. It, it just reminded me of, you know, <coughs> someone who doesn't get, who's righteous, doesn't get work, doesn't get righteous. It seemed to me the travesty is everything that Moses did that Moses couldn't go into the land of Egypt because he was not completely righteous. He had a That's right. That's right. And so, it, you know, you, I'm saying every time I get this, it's come on. You know, what do you got to do? <laughs> but here's the person who wasn't 100% right. Yeah, and I, 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 out of source number three, I, I, um, uh, out of source number three, there was another little bit um, where it said, where Rabbi Kiva told Rabbi Eliezer, and he quoted the verse, there's, not, there's no righteous person, no completely righteous person, thus justifying, so to speak, the punishment of Rabbi Eliezer. But yes, um, and to me this was fascinating. To me, I, when I found this, I found, wait a minute, you have two narratives of a question Moses asked the Almighty. Two narratives, same question. Different answers. What's going on? And, 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 and both of them, we, we, we get like a, it's time stamped. We have a time stamp when this dialogue happened. Right, number, number one, he, he asked when he went up to heaven, and there he says, don't ask questions, silence. Only a few weeks later, he gets a full-fledged response. But that's a very interesting, you know, dichotomy. But to me, that's not the main question. So, okay, so, God told Moses one thing one time, one the next, because Moses could understand that. The main thing is we're all trying to grapple with is why do bad, why do good people suffer? And it seems like the answer is because two things, maybe because nobody's fully good. Number one, number two, it's better to suffer now than in the world to come. Mm-hmm. So, so mean, yes, we understand it. it we, well, we understand it. We do we? It. Yeah, yeah, we're skeptical about it. We don't, we, we, we don't like it. It's, right, it's. Right, it's hard for us to, to be at peace with it. Well, because even with God's answer that, you know, there's everyone to the four things, you know, good, bad, partial, good, right, partial, bad, right. whatever it is. I mean, because we look at people in this world and we don't judge it the same way. Why did this person who wasn't perfect but is really a good person, why is that person suffering? And somebody who's, in our view, probably collectively, mostly not a good person, mm-hmm. they're not suffering. Mm-hmm. Right, and, uh, right. But the, according to this, the, the, the way to un, unlock this problem is that there's going to be a final accounting. I mean, we're not done. We don't see the whole picture. So you have to really put faith in the world that comes. No, 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 but it's, it's, it's not even that. It's, it, it's not, it's, it's, I think it's, it's more simplistic than that. Once you accept the idea of a just God, we don't have this good and this God. We don't have the good and the bad, right? We accept this idea. Um, therefore, we have a problem. Wait a minute. How do you have a just God, yet all we see, or not all we see, but a lot of what we see is injustice? You know, that's a question I think anyone who accepts the, the notion of God is going to be faced at some point. If we accept the idea of God being just. And remember, that's the Jewish God. You know, you look, all the prayers we say during Yom Kippur, that God's just, yet we see injustice. So that is a major problem. 
uh, and we have to grapple with it. There's no way around it. Uh, but you know, there's one response which I think um, some people probably you know feel uh, feel uh, more comforted um, going this avenue by saying, "Well, God wasn't there." You know, God kind of doesn't have the full reins. Um, that's one response. <laughs> what you're doing is saying, "Well, I, I see the full picture," and God's, you know, God's handcuffs. Or you say, I don't see the full picture, and God has full control. Those are basically the only two ways that you could really reconcile this problem. Um, it seems like for the Talmud that the, that the response that, 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 that they had was that, yes, God is in complete control, but we don't see everything. We don't see the final accounting. We don't see anything beyond our, you know, our now purview. Uh, and and according to the Talmud, you know, according to the Talmud, when you ask God, where is Rabbi Tiva's reward? You see his punishment. That's his reward. Because there's no greater reward than to have your punishment in this world. Is that something we're comfortable with? Is that something we feel good about? No. No. It's, it's, you know, it's very hard for us to accept that. And that's okay, you know. And the Talmud tells us, you know what? When Moses tried to understand that, he said, no, 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 this is not the way you can understand that. Right? This is the way I think. This is the way God thinks. You know? If you had God's perspective, it would make sense to you. We don't have it. We'll never be at ease with the idea. It'll never, it'll never feel good to accept that. We can understand it. You know? So we, ha- we, we have to, you know, that's where the tension is going to be, trying to understand the issue, yet not being able to feel good about it. Okay, so this is uh, maybe, maybe I have to be invited back. <laughs> I have to call over Waterland to tell him sorry. I was invited back. Judy invited me back. <laughs> Listen, these are all these are all very very good questions. And now we do. I I do have. I'm saying that's a good question. Um, I'll just tell you a story that um, maybe could provide some insight. Um, my uh, my grandfather, a blessed memory, uh, was a kind of a very famous and influential rabbi in Israel. Uh, but he he wasn't from Israel. He grew up in Berlin, mm-hmm. born in nineteen fourteen in in Berlin, and grew up in a family um, where kind of the Torah values and the Torah virtues weren't necessarily the most important thing. You know, uh, eventually he crazy stories how he ended up in yeshiva. I actually just just over the weekend I was reading some of like his kind of hidden biographies or autobiography, some of his own personal writings that he had written. He writes the story. He always wanted to go to yeshiva, but his father didn't let him. Eventually, he met some guy who tried to convince him to. I'll just quickly tell the story. He met someone who tried to convince him to go to yeshiva in Poland. Now, for for us, like we think of Europe, well, Germany, Poland. For someone who grew up in Berlin. Whose father was a professor who spoke twelve languages, not quite twenty-seven, but twelve, right? Uh, and to someone like that to go to Poland is like you, your kid deciding, I, I want to go to, I don't know, Conroe. Yeah, well, <laughs> not even Conroe, like yeah, or let's just go to the other end of the world. So um, he decided to write a letter. He decided to write a letter to his father. I'll ask him. He'll say no way for sure, not. Yeah, he writes a letter. The father, his father responds, "Go, go to, go to Poland, go to Mir, go to Yeshiva." And to him, he was shocked when he got that response. Like his father, like anything he knew about his father, would, would like completely um, uh, preclude him from positively responding. Anyhow, so later on, he found out that um, his father had a um, little uh, superstitious, um, and he had at, he was on vacation in Rome, and he. He had asked a fortune teller. He kind of he had a relationship with this with this some with this person with this sixth sense. That's a violation right there. Well, it's his father. Don't blame me. Yeah. So um, his fa- his father had asked this person in 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 Germany before he left on this trip. He was going on this cruise to to, to Italy. 
He asked him, give me what's going to be in this trip. The guy told him, your son is going to send you a, a letter with a very bizarre request. Grant his request. And then, he's in Italy, he gets a letter from my grandfather, can I go to the Mir Yeshiva? I go to Yeshiva. And then he says, here's the letter, and you let him go to Yeshiva. So he ended up, he ended up Yeshiva, and, and <laughs> that's the Nancy only... Reagan. Huh? Yeah, Nancy Reagan. yeah well... She lives by a stone. Well, that, well that's, that's his father, my grandfather's father. Right. Eventually, that's the only way he, he ended up in Sweden throughout the war. And made it to Israel in 1946. He, which, which, which to us, with you know, we to, to get to Israel from 45 to 48, very difficult. You know, um, but he managed. To, they managed to get in there, and he opened the yeshiva. And he wrote many, many books. Very influential, and uh, you know, um, rabbi in Israel. Anyhow, so uh, he died, and shortly his name was Shlomo. I have a son named Shlomo, named after him, and he. Um, I have a cousin. And my cousin had a baby boy like six months after, you know, our esteemed grandfather died. So what do you name your boy when you're Shlomo? He named him Shlomo. And, um, and three months later, the child died of, of, of crib death. And he was obviously devastated. And my uncle in New York, this was an issue, my uncle in New York wrote him a letter. And he wrote him a letter that what happened was that the soul of my of our esteemed grandfather, you know, it was a perfect soul. It's a wonderful character. Read about him. <laughs> but he had one flaw. And that flaw, that hole, uh, was the fact that he wasn't born into a wholesome family or a family that believed in the virtues of Torah as an one ideal. That was lacking. Therefore, the soul had to come back around and your baby was the same soul. And once he fulfilled, that's, that's the soul of the Ravli, the same name Shlomo. And, but once he fulfilled his, you know, he kind of, he, 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 he didn't need to be there anymore. And he, and he went back. That's what, that's what my uncle wrote, wrote, well, that's what he wrote as to try to comfort him. So Rabbi, it's good that okay. you had the second Shlomo. <laughs> yes. Well, that's what he wrote. I don't know if it's true or not. All I know is that to them it was comforting. To, you know, the perspective of this was not for nothing. You know, whatever, you know. I, I, I don't know what to say. I don't, yeah, I, I, I don't know if we have any, we have any uh, yeah, this is a question and it will remain a question. Well, the question is, is it more comforting than the thought of, you know, that's the thing. I, I, it wasn't random. Yeah, it wasn't they, random. They That's what she... The most, I think essentially I would think so. Like, I, I don't know. It's funny. I didn't actually... I heard this from my uncle. From actually my aunt. She told me that. I don't know where he had the gumption to write that. He wrote them a letter because he, he was in New York and they're, they're in Jerusalem. But to me, it was, it's a perspective. And whether or not it was comforting, who knows? But I no, I think that sometimes, you know, people are, you know, in the midst of grief. And I'll tell you, it's, there's two things. One is who didn't come to see them and say something. And the second thing is, it's something odd that they say that hits them and, or they read that is very comforting. Mm-hmm. And someone else looks at it and it's just, So I I, I I have to follow up. But it certainly helps your uncle. <coughs> yeah. I'd be very but curious. W- but it helped your uncle. If you, uh, 
doctor. What, what would Frankel say oh, about like this? Oh, oh, good. <laughs> you know, he's, the worst thing is to see no purpose in anything. That's the worst thing. What's the worst thing? Amorphous. There's no purpose in anything. If you have a child, and the child is seen as an angel, because an angel only has one purpose. Once that purpose is done, the angel disappears. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is Jewish mm-hmm. law or Jewish tradition. What's the purpose? An angel is usually assigned one purpose. It can happen in a second. It can happen in a century. And when that purpose is completed, the angel goes back to the source. Mm-hmm. So like when a bell rings three times. Yeah. Well, under an under a, under an eagle. All right, but if you have if you have a baby that dies, and you get a feeling there's no purpose, there's no reason, there's nothing. It's amorphous. That is the most discomfort. Mm-hmm. When you say, well, it's fulfilled. There's a soul that had something lacking which fulfilled a great person that influences generations by virtue of teachings and so on. And in a sense, it completed what was missing. And so my child provided something to close the circle. Even that's not what you want. It's painful. But it's still comforting. It's morning, but it has a certain comforting tone to it, rather than there's absolutely no reason and no purpose, and, and we're yeah. lost. It. But that child is born with a pure heart. Mm-hmm. How can it take on the problems or the misdeeds? Well, what he's saying is not it wasn't about misdeeds; it was about completing the circle. So, I, listen, I, I think that it does provide; it could potentially provide some meaning for suffering. And is there is it, if there is meaning in suffering, is it still suffering? Yes, uh, but I think that that is a uh, an, an angle or a perspective that could potentially provide some comfort and some meaning uh, to the pain. Like I said um, when we started, this is a like I said a very heavy issue. Um, Typically, when you talk about this, there's a few things you don't want to bring up, and that's one of them is small children, because how could you, you know, how could you even try to attempt to try to say, you know, such such suffering? Uh, but I think the perspectives that we find in the Talmud and kind of the the nuances uh, between Rabbi Akiva and, and Moses and Moses kind of deliberating with this issue, I think it does show us that this is an important issue, and it's an issue that's not easily understood. And and there's a lot of subtleties to it. Moses Moses was asked that question, and he didn't get an answer. And God tells him, this is not for you. And if we find that our uh, our attempts to try to find, uh, f- you know, find some sort of equilibrium in this issue are not being fulfilled, we could say we're, we're like Moses, you know? We also have a hard time, and that's okay. Um, yes. In, in regard to the glowing of Yes, the yes. Is that... Yes, 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 yes. It says Tikaran Arpanov. That's what the verse says. It says Koran Arpanov. They put, people want to look at him because Koran Arpanov. The word Koran means well, not Koran. 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 Uh, if the Kuf Resh Nun can mean a horn. Karen. Karen. It means a horn. Koran means um, it, it illuminated. Uh, that's where. That's right. That's that's where it came from. That, that's exactly where it came from. Uh, Jews of horns. As a matter of fact, when I was living as a young child in Fort Worth in our apartment complex, my mom made friends with her neighbor, who was from East Texas. And during the course of conversation over the uh, coffee, my mother happened to explain that because she was Jewish. The woman stepped back and looked. Where the horns? Where are, Where are your horns? And she was very, very honest about it. Thank you. Thank you all. Yes, I appreciate that. Everybody heard the fishermen's next month. Can I make an announcement? No. 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 No